Do you know what a hepatica is? Yeah, neither did I. Welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie on News Radio WINA. This show is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping. I'm Leslie Harris, and the more I know about gardening, the more I know I don't know about gardening. But that's one of the many fun parts about gardening. Our plant of the week, well, we have two of them. I'll be chatting with Tanya Anderson of the Lovely Greens blog, and she has written a book called A Woman's Garden. And the playlist is about what to do in your garden this week. Hey, Blue Ridge Prism is hosting three more workshops on how to identify, or maybe it was just a total of three and they just haven't happened yet. I made this announcement a couple weeks ago, but it's a good one. So listen up. It's workshops on how to identify alien invasives. And it's really good to know what they are so that at least you can yank them out of your yard. Uh, the workshops are March 1st, that one's online, March 3rd, also online, and March 12th in person, of course, here, you know, in the Charlottesville area. So that wouldn't apply to some of you. But the online ones, I think anybody could do. They're just $10 each. And I'm going to put a link um, because I think a lot of these alien invasives around here in Albemarle County would be kind of all over the East Coast. And if you're listening from farther afield, it could still be very helpful. I started this show with a teaser that I'm only going to come through on halfway. The hepatica is a really lovely plant, but upon putting 10 minutes into a Google machine search, I feel like maybe I know why I don't know this plant. Maybe I know why I haven't grown it and I haven't seen it too much. Turns out they don't like clay soil. I live in Virginia. And they don't like high humidity. Hey, I live in Virginia. Hmm, but I think I still might give them a try. Here's what I did find out. They're low, like three to five inches low, and they grow from a rhizome, so they're not a bulb. They're wild to most of the eastern half of the United States and what looked like petals to us, but it seems like they're actually bracts, you know, like a dogwood. That's You think that's a flower, but that's a bract. Um, it, can be, it can be white or pink or purple, and it's basically a daisy shape. This has a common name of liverwort, and they're wildflowers, but I think you can buy them. So here's, I've just displayed, you know, openly displayed my ignorance on the subject of the hepatica. That's an H, hepatica. Um, but that's all I have time to know today. Do, do you have days like that where you're like, I can't know more? But if you know more, how about sending me a photograph of your hepaticas on Instagram? I am Leslie Harris LH, and then I can know more, and then I can run my mouth with a little bit more confidence. The real plant of the week is the stinking hellebore. This is Helleborus fetidus. It has that wonderful diphthong at the front, F-O-E, fetidus. Some gardeners get really agitated at the name and they cry out, oh, but it doesn't really smell that bad. But I grow them and I can calmly assure you that it really doesn't smell that good. This is a perennial and it's native to Europe and Asia, sadly. It's about a foot and a half tall and wide and it grows in zones five through nine, so much of the country. And it's blooming right now in mid-February. And it's been blooming for a couple weeks. It doesn't have a lot of competition, that's true, but still, it's winning. The foliage is a dark green, it's very divided, and the flower stalk grows out of sturdy stems. And on top of those, you see layers of sort of droopy lime green, like grapey things. I mean, I just went out and peered at the closest one to my kitchen and they look like grapes now because they're kind of bundled up, but it's quite cold today. So maybe they look, I think they look more like bells on a milder day. Some of the little bells are edged in a rust color that you don't see until you get close up. Very charming. But to me, the best view is from afar. It's a real cool splash of bright green coming up through my brown leaf mulch and the contrast of the two greens, the dark green foliage and the light green blooms and 
stems and bracts and stuff. It's really lovely. And there are lots of blooms. Like the main stalk can have 10 or so smaller stalks coming off of it. And then each of those would have like half a dozen of those little blooms. It's just, it's a really good looking plant and so long blooming. They bloom for months. I mean, blooming now, they'll be blooming in April and May. It starts to look a little bit tatty in summer and I cut the stalk back and leave all the foliage, which is perfectly well behaved and kind of, you know, not noticeable all summer long. Uh, and then they grow that bright green shoot again next winter. They can grow in sun or shade or anywhere in between. I don't waste sunny spots on them because I have a lot of partial shade and I have other things I want to grow in sunny spots. I suppose they might burn in strong sun, but I honestly don't know that. Since they grow and bloom well in shade, why wouldn't you just do that? That's where I have them. Oh, and deer won't eat them because, you know, as I mentioned, they're a bit pungent to be sure. Cut flower, maybe for looks, not for scent. Mine generally stay outside. But in case you're tempted to use one, I seem to remember both from reading it and through experience, because I think I have cut them, that the smell gets milder in March and April when, when the stem gets older. And the color makes a really good foil in arrangements, that lime green. So maybe give them a try then. You would only be hurting your nose. Helleborus fetidus, or the stinking hellebore. It is the plant of the week. This is Into the Garden with Leslie on News Radio WINA. Coming up, we'll be talking with Tanya Anderson, a gardener and author. Welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie on News Radio WINA. And we have a lovely guest with us today, and she has a blog called The Lovely Greens. And she's on Instagram and all that sort of thing. Her name is Tanya Anderson, and she gardens on the Isle of Man, which is an unusual place that I actually thought, I think I know where that is, but I had to. I had to look it up. Um, she is an American, even though she's in the UK now, and I'm very excited to talk to her about her garden and her new book. Hi, Tanya. Hello, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're very glad to have you. And tell us, um, tell us what it's like to live where you are. Tell us where you are and what your garden plot is like. <laughs> the Isle of Man is a very small island, and it's in the Irish Sea between England and Ireland. I arrived here just random chance. I'd lived in London before and was married at that time. And both of us had decided that we wanted to leave London, leave the city. I was really interested in exploring gardening and living simply. And somehow we were watching television one evening and a, an advert came out for Visit the Isle of Man. It was an ad campaign, a tourism campaign. And it looked amazing. And he, my ex, remember, remembered that from when he was a kid, his mom talking about the Isle of Man is where they went on vacation each summer. And so we kind of were intrigued. And in the end, I ended up here. And I absolutely love it. It is a maritime climate. So it's very similar to the Pacific Northwest, where mm. I'm originally from, although it is a little bit colder I would say we're quite a bit further north we're at the same latitude as southern Alaska oh yeah so it's very dark here in the winter but because of the Gulf Stream it stays relatively temperate so it's a really strange climate in that there isn't too much flux between winter and summer oh, which no. can be a little bit challenging <laughs> <laughs> so you get to garden all winter I imagine at some level Yes, definitely. Uh, there's hardly ever any snow. It doesn't really freeze here very often, but it doesn't get that warm. But growing undercover, yes, you can keep greens going 
in an unheated greenhouse or a polytunnel, that's no issue whatsoever. And there are a lot of perennial vegetables and overwintering vegetables that do great here. Uh, purple sprouting broccoli is one of my favorites. And uh, a, a lot of the perennial vegetables that I mentioned in my book, they do fantastically here because they, they don't necessarily have a really hard winter to have to survive through. So it is it is actually fantastic in a way. I just wish it were a little bit hotter in the summer. Yeah, it's nice to have, be able to take off the jumper, right? The sweatshirt or whatever. <laughs> so let's talk about your book. Tell us about it. You've just uh, It's just come out recently, right? Last year in April, I can't believe it's been that long. So it's coming up on a birthday right now. The title is A Woman's Garden. Yeah, it's a, it's a woman's garden, there grow beautiful plants and make useful things. Gosh, this was the book that I always wanted to write. When a publisher uh, approached me, they had some ideas for me to write a book. Initially, I was like, oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. And then I went back and I had a, a, a really good think about it. And I wasn't ready to put that much time and effort into something that wasn't 100% me. So I proposed this book instead. And they were all for it, which was great because then I got to, to write the book that I wanted to, something that's a little bit different from other gardening books, but one that I think really appeals to creative people, especially after having been through the pandemic and being at home and exploring crafts and cooking and basically being confined at times to our gardens or our, our lawns, our yards. It marries together this idea of growing plants and then using them in different ways. So whether that is in creative cookery or in natural soap making or fabric and textile dyeing or uh, herbal medicine. So lots and lots of different categories of plants are introduced. And I wanted to give a really good overview of each, but also feature a woman who specializes in growing this type of plant and using it, whether it's for their business or for creative hobby or um, just an absolute fanatic about that type of plant. And the reason that I really wanted to focus on women is that I've been blogging and writing and making YouTube videos for a long time, and I know my people really well. And I find that it's women that are really interested in growing things and then I guess crafting with, with the plants that they make. And when I say crafting, that can include food as well. So beautiful edible flower dishes, making things like the, the herb embedded pasta, also expanding out into soap and skincare, just beautiful, beautiful makes that take that aspect of the garden right through a process and make it usable in many ways through the home. As I'm flipping through your book online, I thought it was a very interesting thing to see that you sort of occupy the space between with your ideas and this book, the space between just ornamental gardening and simply edible gardening, vegetable gardening. Um, and the space between that I had never considered, um, I have uh, known people to make soap and it sounds awesome, um, but this is, a, this is a big project for you and all these other projects too. Most people, when they think, oh, well, let's bring the garden indoors, it's let's harvest some tomatoes and cut them up for a caprese, or let's cut some dahlias and throw them in a vase. You take your garden indoors in a completely different way. Tell us a little bit more. You're absolutely right. With garden media, with literature, television, 
uh, podcasts and radio, you really have people that gravitate towards purely ornamental. So creating a beautiful garden for enjoying aesthetically or maybe for privacy reasons or collecting specimens. Or you have people that are 100% all about growing food. And you have so much to choose from in those two categories of growing, but there is a growing middle in there. And I think in the States in particular, it's lumped into this idea of homesteading. Oh, right. Yeah. People who have homestead gardens, but that encompasses much more than just gardening. That's an aspect of being self-sufficient and um, the permaculture animals. Uh, yeah, so th- that's a lot. So I wanted to focus mainly on growing and using plants in creative ways. That is what the book is about. And it really does reach that group of people who don't necessarily want to have a purely ornamental garden or a purely practical one, but one that can be both and fit a different need, a need to connect with the land and with the garden to find a place that can be a bit of a haven, can, that you can express your creativity, and that you can learn more about plants growing organically and support, I guess, a greener lifestyle, but also a greener planet that way as well. Oh, yeah. This is Into the Garden with Leslie on News Radio WINA. And we're talking with Tanya Anderson, who is on the Isle of Man. She has a big um, social media presence and a lovely blog, YouTube, everything. And now she's just written a book. Look for your handle on Instagram, I think, is the Lovely Greens. Yeah, so Lovely Greens. And you can find me on Instagram, Facebook. I am on Twitter, but I'm not on very often. And then, of course, I have my YouTube channel and my blog. Yeah, that's, yeah, those are the primary ways that you share your information. Yeah, so with, with my website, I show ways to garden, but also lots and lots of soap making and natural home ideas and using plants in different ways. YouTube is mainly gardening. So people tend to go there just for updates on the garden and gardening tips and, and tricks and creative ways to reduce cost and impact in the garden while, again, maintaining a beautiful growing space. You just had addressed before our our little break the uh, the idea that homesteading could be scary to some people. Certainly scary to me. What I know about that just sounds like little house on the prairie. I'm not doing that. I need my supermarket right around the corner. Um, but but the idea of bringing some things into the into the house to do, you know, snackable, fun, and 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 really good for you um, crafts with with some things in your garden how did you get started with that was soap making your first thing uh yes with using plants as a make yes when I first moved to the Isle of Man I got an allotment which a lot of Americans aren't really familiar with as a concept it's kind of like a community garden but you each have your own plot so it's like a patchwork quilt of small gardens in one large field Anyway, I I got an allotment. I was really interested in soap making and and making skincare. And I taught myself how to make handmade soap. And I had this allotment. I was learning to be a beekeeper at the same time. So I found a way to be able to merge them all together. At that time, there wasn't very much information on natural soap making online, which was my main way of trying to teach myself. Um, There were very few books as well in that regards. So 
I started experimenting with different ways to use plants and natural dyeing. So fiber dyeing is actually a really big influence on natural soap making when it comes to natural colorants and all of that. And I found that there are ways that we can incorporate plants to a certain extent with handmade soap. And it's, you know, in the very least, it makes it more attractive and more interesting and that connection with the garden. And on the other end of that spectrum, they potentially could add therapeutic properties to the bars. Don't really know. I'm not going to say anything specific on that. I'm not a scientist, but there is definitely that possibility. And it's just such a beautiful way of taking lavender that you've grown and harvested and then perhaps putting it on the tops of your bars, that beautiful scent and that decoration. The same with calendula flowers. Calendula is my favorite plant to grow because it has so many uses throughout soap making and it's edible and you can use it as a companion plant and it's just so bright and cheerful all year long. So I started with the allotment, started making handmade soap, the bees, and then I combined them all together. And then it just kind of made, you, made me think and question, what else can I make? What else can I do? And there is just a world of ideas out there of what you can do with what you make. And delving into that, I think, is just really special and exciting, too, for those of us who are practical gardeners, but also a bit crafty and want to find a different way to connect with the plants that we grow. It must have been difficult to choose the women that you featured in your book. There were, I think, 15 of them? Eight. Eight. Only eight. I got that wrong. Yes. Um, Wow. So that must have been a very difficult uh, selection process. How did you go about choosing? And it must have been centered on, I don't know, your, your relationship with the person, but also what they do. Tell us about a few of your favorites. All of the, nearly all of the women featured in the book, I knew through social media. One, the the one exception is Tarasinha, and I'm a customer of hers. She's a natural uh, dyer. She supplies dye plants and dye plant seeds in the UK. But I had connected with everyone else on Instagram or Facebook. And what I wanted to do is feature a really inspiring female grower with a beautiful growing space that would be very inspirational, but with a specific story behind themselves as a gardener and what they grow. And so the feature not only showcases the plants in the growing space, but the reason why they garden, which is really different from person to person and how they find inspiration and use plants. And there are women from Canada, the United States, Brazil, Germany, the UK. I feature in one of the chapters as well. So I gave myself the chapter on making soap and skincare. And I wanted to just show a wide range of different types of gardens, some variants in the the climates as well. So everything from Canada to California, on that spectrum in North America. And then here in Britain, there's uh, a few of us in Britain that I know, and then of course in Northern Germany as well. And I wish I could do a book that would just focus completely on all of the different wonderful growing spaces and gardeners out there that fit into this genre. You could literally fill books with the inspiration that you can find, especially on social media these days. I bet, I bet it was just amazing. 
Can you pinpoint any feedback that you've had on the book that has surprised you? That has surprised me. I am constantly surprised by how many people buy my book and then they'll go onto Instagram, which is my main social media. They'll tag me in a post that they put up and just gush about how much they love it. And it gets me every single time. I'll (laughs) usually share it in my stories. And it's just such a surreal feeling to know that you've put your heart and soul into something and it's affecting people. And that was the most surprising point of it is the connection, not just between the women that I feature and I still have relationships with in the book, but with lots of other people, men and women. It's not just a book for women. It's for everyone who really likes that feminine spirit and that creative aspect of plants. And just that connection with other people, that was the most surprising part of it afterwards. That's very cool. How long did it take you to uh, to write it? I signed my contract towards the end of 2019. And then I had December to work and then everything had to be in at the beginning of July. And I did the vast majority of the photographs as well. So that took a long time. And then formulating the recipes and uh, of course, soap recipes and getting everyone else organized. One, one of the, my big ideas for the book was that I was going to visit most of the women oh, and don't. photograph their gardens. And then of course the pandemic hit. So it was scrambling to figure out what to do. And fortunately, every single person came through with sending in beautiful images and giving uh, Cool Springs Press and myself the, the right to publish them of their beautiful growing spaces and some of the things they make as well. That's good. Yeah. Bad news is that you can't go see them. Good news is your social life is put on hold. So you have more time to concentrate on your book. <laughs> yes, that too. That too. My life became purely about the book for a while. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about your garden a little bit. Um, can, can you give us some features? Do you have raised beds? Do you have a separate veg place or do you incorporate your vegetables in with your ornamentals? Uh, t- tell us a little bit about your land. I have two growing spaces. So I have the allotment, which is the rented growing space. And I have a home garden as well, although we're at a new house now. So we're creating a new garden. We've moved in in April of last year. So at the same time the book came out, we moved. The allotment is a lot more established. I've had it for years and it has lots of different beds. They're all divided by wood chip paths which I find are excellent in keeping down weeds and they're relatively easy to maintain as long as you make sure that nothing grows in them. And then each of the beds I grow in a polyculture pretty much. I do, I do grow some things in rows and sometimes a type of veg or a type of plant will take up an entire bed, but it's very rare. I grow a little bit here, a little bit there just to try to mitigate the impacts of any kind of pests. And also because I really like the way that it looks and it does attract pollinators. If you have a clump of chamomile here, another clump there, the same goes with lots of different types of, of uh, plants, including the rosemary and the thyme, anything that, that is herby and, and um, sends up flowers just attracts bees and butterflies and all kinds of wonderful pollinating insects. And then if somebody were to see your house um, in your neighborhood, would they know immediately from the front yard, oh, this person is a crazy mad gardener? (laughs) Yes, 
<laughs> but it isn't as well established right now. I, I'm looking out my window right now. So this is my desk and I can see the garden out here and it's, I'm putting in no dig beds. We're on a slight slope here. So I'm putting, I've put in uh, wooden frames around each just to hold the compost in place. And I've just planted up, let's see here, how many trees do I have planted out there now? <laughs> I think I've got eight fruit trees planted up. I've, I have a row of minaret trees. Minaret, so, I don't know those, what are those? They are a specially trained type of fruit tree. It's a bit ornamental, but also very productive. They are trained on dwarf fruit stock, but they're also trained to grow in a cordon. Mm. So they're, they're vertical, uh, vertical trees that you can plant really close together. And I'm creating oh, yeah. a hedge with them. And it's a mixture of cherry, pear, and apple. And I'm training four of the apple trees over arches as well. So I'll be having living arches of apple trees in the future. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot more trees going in. My partner is a little bit at the point where are there any more trees coming in the post? <laughs> I just want to know. <laughs> do you start with big trees or do you go small bare root? What do you do? We're on a bit of a slope here. And so I have to work with it. I don't want to overshadow anything a bit further down the slope. And so right now I'm focusing on semi-dwarf fruit trees and they're towards the bottom or the middle to the bottom part of the garden. And we are putting in a polytunnel, a very special type of polytunnel up at the top as well. It's, I've, I've not quite released what it is on YouTube. I just uh, announced yesterday that we had planning permission come through. But oh, it's yeah, a type I saw of, that on Instagram. You look yeah. very excited. <laughs> oh, planning permission. I know that some people in some areas, maybe in the States, I think, and, and other parts, you don't have to do any kind of planning. But here, you definitely do for certain sizes and certain constructions. Oh. And this one is, is going to be beautiful. And it's it's one that you don't replace plastic. Oh, good. So it reduces plastic. And it's made by a very small company in the Shetland Islands. And so you know it can hold up to the wind. <laughs> yes, which is so important here on the Isle of Man too, because we get blasted by storms through the winter. So yes, cannot wait for that. And that is definitely going to extend my growing season. I know yes. you mentioned no dig beds. Do you do a lot of composting? Yes, everything gets composted here. And uh, Bokashi composters in the kitchen, it's constantly getting topped up. I've got compost space outside I've got a wormery oh, nice. so if if it can break down it can be composted in some way I mean I've not gotten to the point of composting toilets but I won't rule that out in the future I, I am very at, much inspired by permaculture yeah I looked into those for a while um because I I wanted to put one in my garage I'm like what you know uh, let me just uh check into this and I checked into it and then checked out of it. Uh, it did look <laughs> fascinating, but I, I just, it was a bridge too far for me. Just couldn't, nope, can't, can't do that. Um, somebody has to empty those things, Tanya. <laughs> Yucky. Um, do you have any favorite tools that you work with in the garden? What's always on your hip? Do you have uh, secateurs or something that you love? I do. And I use a, a specific brand, and I won't mention the brand here, but I use, it's a Japanese make. And Ooh. I love all of their tools. Does it start with an O? No, it doesn't. Okay. Just checking. That's my favorite in their Japanese. It, it starts with an N. Okay. All right. I'll yeah. check that out. <laughs> I've, I've actually looked and I don't think they're very well known yet in the States, but 
pretty much every professional gardener that I know here in Britain uses this particular brand and with good reason. And the best tool of the lot is the Hori Hori knife. Mm. And I didn't think that I would ever like it or need it. And I was gifted one by this company as a, as a promotion and I cannot live without it. it is the okay. best tool that I've yeah. ever used. Do you wear it? Do you wear it on a, on your hip? Do you have it with you? I'm not really a hip belt person. I have a gardening bag okay. and it's always in the bag with everything else. Mine's in my holster and I can, <gasps> if I forget and I just pop into the supermarket, it's not, I get some looks. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's not illegal in the States here. I mean, you might be taken down. Oh, no. <laughs> I hadn't even considered that. No, we could do a lot of things here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, can you think of anything else that you wanted to tell me about your book or your social? I, I know I'm going to put links to everything, as I always do, in the blog that goes along with the, uh, with the show notes that goes along with this episode. Uh, but can you think of anything else that you would like um, listeners to know about? Yes. There's a section in the book. So the chapter that I feature in, it shows how to make soap. And also a little bit later in the book, there is a section on how to naturally color soap using plants and and fruit and vegetables and things like that. And I am going to be featuring this year on YouTube, specifically growing plants that I feature in in the book for soap making in particular. And I think that will make people I guess, a little bit excited. If you're interested in gardening and soap making, rather than just read about it, you can see it as well. And I'm dedicating an entire bed at the allotment to soap plants. I'm going to keep tabs on this. I'm so, um, I'm just so over the one-use plastics and the pumps Mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing. And I think bar soap has a big future coming. And if it's going to be beautiful and right from the garden, I mean, even better, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you can make liquid soap from scratch as well. It's a little bit more of a complicated process. I have a, a free tutorial on my website, how to make liquid hand soap oh. from scratch. You make a batch and it will last you six months and it's completely natural. Oh my gosh, so much to know. This has been fascinating. <laughs> I wish we had time to go into it, but at least um, the listeners and the watchers of this will be able to know all about what you do and look at your channel uh, on YouTube and uh, the book, of course. And I really appreciate your uh, your chat with me. Thank you very much, Tanya. Yeah, thank you. And if anyone wants to get a hold of A Woman's Garden, it's available on, at all major booksellers in the US. So think of any, like one starting with A or one starting with E. <laughs> <laughs> all those ones. Got all it. those ones. And uh, I think Cool Springs Press may also have a list on their website of where to get okay. women's right. I'll make sure that's all linked up so that people can get into it. Thank you very <laughs> much. Thank you. This has been lovely. It has been very lovely, like the lovely greens. Um, <laughs> this is Into the Garden with Leslie on News Radio WINA. Up next, we're going to talk about what to do in your garden right now. Welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie on News Radio WINA. It's time for the playlist. Tanya was terrific. There are so many how-to videos out there on YouTube about gardening, but I am thinking there are not so many about how to make your own soap, skincare, dyes, etc. I'm going to put all the links that you may need in the blog on lhgardens.com. She is a charming person to listen to besides being so knowledgeable and inspiring, and her book is inspiring too. I'll put a link. I got a question from a listener named Roger about Ivy. 
He was wondering why something that is sold in nurseries is so maligned by some gardeners. This is a great question, and it's one I'm pleased to be able to answer on a couple of different levels. Heterohelix, or ivy, is so pretty. It's native to Europe and Asia. It looks lovely dringling out of a pot with some flowers or a topiary. Some people like it as a ground cover, but even with its other faults, you would never count me in on that because it travels fast. And so it's a constant maintenance issue as a ground cover. So why is it alien invasive sold in nurseries? Because nurseries are in the business of selling plants and people buy it. We've talked a few times on this podcast about your role and mine as a consumer who has control, just a tiny little bit of control, not a lot, on the nursery market just by using your words. If we were all to so politely make it known to the vendor where we buy plants that we're interested in native and organically grown plants that are not invasive, by the way, it would really make a difference. Their job is to find out what we want and provide it so they make money. So if you were to ask about native ground covers, they might want to get some of those in instead of ivy. And if you still want ivy, geez, you could come over here and dig some of mine up. It's constantly growing in from neighbors on all sides. So but back to the question, ivy is another alien invasive that escapes our cultivation, certainly escapes the cultivation of my neighbors. I must stop making this about me, sorry. And it ends up in the woods where it takes the place of native plants that feed our bugs and our birds. If you have ivy in your garden and it's under control, you're not committing any grievous environmental errors, I assure you. But if it's growing vertically, like in your woods, out of control, out of your cultivation, in other words, if it's growing up a fence or up a tree or on your house, well, all three of those are in danger. Plus, when ivy grows vertically, it's able to flower and then fruit and then spread by seed outside of your yard. And ivy roots can damage wood fairly quickly and will even get a good grip on mortar by and by. It will grow into windows, and that's a mystery for sure. Why would a plant that gets its food from the sun through chlorophyll and photosynthesis decide to move into a dark, dank basement, but I've seen it a lot. Maybe it's thinking like, wait, do these people have that one National Geographic that would complete my 1973 collection? Or maybe it's thinking, ooh, they have a new Makita drill. I mean, I just have no idea why they would go into your house, into your basement, usually. So many mysteries in horticulture. Anyway, Roger, in sum, ivy is an alien invasive, and that's why it's maligned. But it's sold in stores for the same reason that, say, uh, cigarettes are sold in stores. It's not a great thing to buy, but people do. So we finished up our hydrangea pruning series with my favorite, the floppy Miss Annabelle, the hydrangea arborescence last week. And to sum up all the hydrangea pruning tips, again, you never have to, and you really shouldn't because you might be taking away flowers, except for the arborescence type and the paniculata types. My offer of identifying yours, if you're still confused as to what you have, still stands. If you want to send me a picture to my email, that is lharris at lhgardens.com. But let's keep talking about pruning and let's do boxwood. I love boxwood. I wish it were native. Even the native sounding American boxwoods sadly are not native. I heard a gardener say that you might as well have a plastic plant in your garden instead of having boxwood. That is how good for the environment they are. I found that a bit harsh. I mean, at least they would provide physical shelter for wildlife, even if it doesn't feed wildlife. But I guess a plastic plant would too. Man, that is pathetic, but technically correct. Well, how about this counterpoint? It's my garden, and I have tons of native plants and trees in my garden, 
and I want to enjoy my boxwoods too. There, problem solved. Pruning, I can't cover it all here, but let me just start by saying that winter is the perfect time to prune boxwoods, but not to shear boxwoods. And what's the difference? So pruning is reaching in and thinning individual branches, and shearing is like giving the buzz cut to the outside only. When you reach in and you hand prune, besides creating air pockets, which boxwoods love, and it helps to prevent blight and other fungal maladies, you can also reduce the size of your shrub just as you would with shearing. You just grab the taller bits or the wider bits if you're working on the sides, and it will gradually come down in size. You reach in and you cut it about a quarter of a third of the way in, and you don't really have to pay attention to where you cut. Like with some plants you want to cut right above a node, You can cut most anywhere on a boxwood, it'll grow back. These are very tough plants. Some gardeners even reach in and just break the branches instead of using a clean cut with pruners. I can't say I recommend that method, but I've done it when I was in a hurry, and I can't tell you there were any ill effects. Don't be afraid to make some subtle holes. When I had my gardening business, we literally would write on the client sheet, and Abby probably still does it, punch holes in boxwood. They do like air and interior growth, which they'll be able to do once the sun and the air get to the interior of the plant. Interior growth makes them healthier plants. So why not shear? Shearing is very useful and it can let you get creative with really tight control. I even use scissors on my little boxwood topiaries, which is super fun and just a little bit weird. But shearing cuts leaves and not wood, and those leaves can turn brown in cold or very hot weather. So if you shear now, You know, the plant will live, but you're taking a chance with not a gorgeous look. Milder temperatures provide a great chance for shearing. Next week, I'm going to give you some more information on pruning boxwoods, like making skylights and Swiss cheese on the big ones, and being a little bit more delicate on the smaller ones as you punch your holes. Swiss cheese, you are thinking, hmm, well, you have to wait for it. The playlist of garden things, gosh, we are way past Groundhog's Day, but it really hasn't changed much since last week. So, sow your seeds. Prune your damaged, crossing, broken branches. Punch holes in your boxwoods. Go looking for early spring ephemerals in the woods or in your yard. Hepatica, anybody? Snowdrops, maybe Aranthus, the winter aconite, that little yellow one? Maybe those are coming on. How about clean and sharpen your tools to get ready for the season? Do you have some seed packets lying around and you're just not quite sure if the little fellows are viable, if they're going to sprout? The paper towel test is recommended. You just take a few from the dubious package and you fold them into a wet paper towel and you put it someplace a little bit warm maybe, keep the paper towel moist, keep an eye on the little seeds, and if they don't sprout there, you know they are duds and you can pitch the packet because they're not gonna sprout. And what to listen to this week? I heard a good Joe Gardner interview with the author of that amazing book that is on my list. It's called The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate, Discoveries from a Secret World. It's by Peter Wollaben, who is German, and I hope I'm saying his name correctly. This is an international bestseller from 2015 that's a little bit controversial. Joe Lample doesn't address the controversy in the interview with him because, um, well, I don't know why he doesn't, maybe because it would be awkward. Anyway, it's controversial because it's a somewhat emotional book, and arborists say that it's not strictly scientific. But from what I understand, it's very well written and it has wonderful information on it, some of which is proven. And if you have an appreciation for trees and you're looking for a well-written opportunity to appreciate them more, then check out this book. You can read it or listen to it on Audible while you're gardening, The Hidden Life of Trees. I'd like to thank Kurt from Northwest Connecticut for his review. He wrote back in the fall, sorry to be tardy, Kurt, thanking you. 
I just discovered Leslie's podcast, and I'm so glad I did. Her range of topics is timely and diverse, and she is a confident, practical gardener who will readily admit the things she's still learning. I really enjoy the show, and I can't wait to see what new things Leslie creates. Thank you so much, Kurt. You are right. There is a lot to admit in terms of <clears throat> stuff I'm still learning, but that's good. That's part of it. Okay, I think that does it for the week. If you have any questions or comments or corrections, please reach out to me at Instagram. I am Leslie Harris LH, my website, lhgardens.com. And please go to my website, lhgardens.com, and have a look at the blog that accompanies this podcast. Add your comments and consider buying me a coffee to help support my work. I named this show Into the Garden with Leslie because I'm really into my garden. I want to get you into yours, and I will see you next week. <music> <laughs>